And you walk in the courtroom and there were just people in suits everywhere. You didn't know who the defenders were. You didn't know who the prosecutors were. No one was standing at a particular table. Uh, judge was on the bench. There were men in orange jumpsuits lined up on the side of the courtroom. And the judge would start started calling names. And the judge would call a name and a voice would pipe up from the suits. No one in a suit ever stood next to someone in a jumpsuit. And within seconds, they would move on to the next case. They were just literally processing people. And then the judge called a name, and a man spoke up and said, uh, I'm here. And the judge said, where's your lawyer? And the man said, I haven't seen a lawyer since I got locked up. The judge said, well, how long have you been locked up? The man said, 70 days. And the judge said, thank you. Sit down and went on with the processing. And so what shocked me more than the fact that a man was locked up for 70 days without a lawyer was that literally no one in that courtroom was phased. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking to Jonathan Rapping, public defender, MacArthur genius, and founder, alongside his wife, of Gideon's Promise. Gideon's Promise is an organization that started in the Deep South, but now works across the country to change the culture of public defense and thereby change the criminal justice system. We're going to talk about the righteousness of public defense and the role of PDs in criminal justice reform. So implicit in our conversation is something of a rebuttal to the conversation I had with Beth McCann back in episode 8 about the role of prosecutors in changing the criminal justice system. Jonathan Rapping is a committed advocate and, like the public defenders he trains, an excellent storyteller, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. I've seen you write that there is no nobler work in the legal profession than being a public defender. Can you explain why that is? So I think, um, really, to understand the work of Gideon's Promise, I think you have to understand that um, that we really think of the biggest problem with the criminal justice system being that we've allowed ourselves to embrace a narrative that sees certain people as others, as less worthy of protection, as less than human. And that that narrative, that mindset that says, poor people um, are expendable, uh, drives really every injustice we see in the criminal justice system and beyond. And if you understand that it is that narrative that drives injustice, then it seems to me obvious that the key to realizing justice is changing that narrative. Um, Public defenders speak for 80% of the people in the criminal justice system. They are literally the vehicle through which uh, people who have been marginalized have their stories heard and told. They're the vehicle that, that, um, through which we can humanize the criminal justice system, through which we can start seeing people as human beings rather than case files. Um, so in that sense, I believe public defenders are literally, uh, collectively, the, uh, the vehicle through which justice will be realized. So what is the Gideon's Promise program doing, and what's the, what does it look like on the ground? So I started my career as a public defender in Washington, D.C., which is one of a handful of public defender organizations in this country um, that has, uh, relatively speaking, enough resources. It has manageable caseloads. It's able to provide training and supervision to lawyers. Um, I spent 10 years in that office. 
Um, what I didn't realize until I left that office and I moved to Georgia, where I was the training director for the new statewide public defender system in Georgia. Um, and then two years later, after Hurricane Katrina hit, I went to New Orleans to help with the effort to rebuild that office. Um, and as I did work around the South, I started to really see that, that what I understood um, to be public defense in D.C. was very different than what public defense looked like in the rest of the country. Um, it wasn't just a lack of resources. It was also that there was an accepted culture, uh, a culture that really accepted the substandard level of justice for poor people, the processing of poor people. And so my wife and I started Gideon's Promise, um, really not just to provide lawyers training so they would have the skills to represent people in, um, in, in more dysfunctional criminal justice systems, but to build a community that would help lawyers um, resist the pressures to process human beings, would give them support as they work to transform that culture, to change that mindset, to infuse the system with a new value set. So I really think sort of at its core, what Gideon's Promise is about is about building an, an army, a community, a movement of public defenders who will transform the way we think about poor people and how they deserve to be treated. So paint a picture for me of you've trained a Gideon's Promise attorney. They're in the courthouse. What does their advocacy look like? What is and and maybe compare that to what else is going on in that courthouse that would make, you know, that would reflect the cultural shift that you want to see. Mm -hmm. So you know, a, a story I'm, 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 I sort of often share is the first time I walked into a courtroom in New Orleans. Uh, it was just after Hurricane Katrina. Um, reform hadn't taken hold yet in New Orleans. And I walked into a courtroom, it was arraignment court, where they were um, uh, uh, having sort of first appearance hearings, um, arraignments for, 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 for people who had been arrested. And, um, and you walk in the courtroom and there were just people in suits everywhere. You didn't know who the defenders were, you didn't know who the prosecutors were, no one was standing at a particular table. Uh, judge was on the bench. There were men in orange jumpsuits lined up on the side of the courtroom, and the judge would start started calling names, and the judge would call a name, and a voice would pipe up from the suits. No one in a suit ever stood next to someone in a jumpsuit. And within seconds, they would move on to the next case. They were just literally processing people. And then the judge called a name, and a man spoke up and said, uh, I'm here, and the judge said, where's your lawyer? And the man said, I haven't seen a lawyer since I got locked up. The judge said, well, how long have you been locked up? The man said, 70 days. And what shocked me more than the, and the judge said, thank you, sit down, and went on with the processing. And so what shocked me more than the fact that a man was locked up for 70 days without a lawyer was that literally no one in that courtroom was phased, right? That was just, that had become the norm in New Orleans. That was all the justice poor people deserved in New Orleans. So, and I think that's, I'm talking about New Orleans, but, but, but that can happen in courtrooms all across this country. So I think what you tend to see in a lot of the courtrooms where we work are lawyers who um, have become that indifferent to what happens to poor people. Uh, they might walk into court and yell their client's name, is Mr. So-and-so here, because they haven't met their client yet. They might stand up um, before trial uh, and say they're ready to go, despite the fact that they haven't 
filed any motions or conducted any investigation, right? It's this idea that I've read the police report, I'm ready to go. And so contrast that with, 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 with the lawyers we're training um, and many of the lawyers in the offices we work with because we tend to work with offices that, that have leadership that at least embrace the same vision. Um, and I think what you see are lawyers who, um, who establish relationships with their clients, who value client relations. When they walk into court, um, they're on the same page with their client. They've filed motions. They've done investigation. Now, they're frequently standing up to judges who want them to hurry things along to simply process cases. Maybe the judges aren't willing to hear the motions or at least not give them any real meaningful um, hearing. Uh, but the lawyers are pushing back, right? And, and it just takes a community of lawyers continually pushing back to start to wake people up to the fact that we've accepted indifference. What role do resources play in all this? Because I, you know, all the things that you're describing, having time to establish a relationship with your client and time to file motions and do investigation, you know, money is a big part of that. So, so resources are critical. And I think that as an organization, um, we are not directly uh, uh, getting resources to our offices. We're focused on the culture change. Um, but the resources are, are critical. I think that the... the What's missing from the national conversation is we tend to see the problem with public defenders solely as resources. So this idea, if we just get public defenders more resources, everything will be fine. And I think what- They could just process more cases. Ex exactly, or go home earlier, to be honest with you. So, so, so one, one story, another story I'm fond of telling is a story of a, a man who was elected in Tennessee by all of the public defenders in Tennessee to be the spokesperson for the Tennessee public defenders. He was the president of the Tennessee Public Defender uh, Conference. And he was at a budget hearing. He was asked a simple question, do you have enough resources? He said, well, let me tell you, I am in a five-county district. I have five offices, five courthouses, and we have five lawyers. And I have one investigator. He said, last year we closed 4,000 cases, right? That's 800 cases per lawyer. And he went on to say, so let me assure you, there's one district in Tennessee that's fine. We're doing okay. He talked about his lawyers. He said they, they're, they're seasoned, so they're more efficient. It's a time saver. Um, those were literally the words he used proudly to describe the work they did. And, 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 and there's no question that lack of resources, of being forced to handle 800 cases a year, teaches lawyers that indifference. But it's also true that simply infusing the system with money won't so quickly undo that indifference. If we gave that public defender all the money he needed, I really believe he, he doesn't know how to be a public defender, so he would just go home early, right? So, so absolutely we need more resources. Absolutely we need structural reform so public defenders have independence. But if we don't address the culture, if we don't address a mindset that really says this is all the justice poor people deserve, we're not gonna have equal justice. Um, one of the interesting things I've read that you've written uh, is about how public defenders are poised to be the voice to change that narrative, as you've talked about, as compared to other people in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. which kind of goes against a lot of what we've been hearing on law schools campuses lately about if you want to you know, change the criminal justice system, go be a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. We've seen you know, an, a trickling of progressive prosecutors elected across the country. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could just sort of respond to those 
pushes we've been getting on campus yeah. lately. Yeah. So so let me let me start off the answer by saying, um, like anyone who cares about justice, um, I am a thousand percent in favor of more progressive prosecutors or uh, less punitive prosecutors or more reasonable prosecutors. But but I also think that um, even the best prosecutors, um, they're not going to transform criminal justice. What they're going to do is make the system a little less cruel. So, for example, um, a, a, a prosecutor can decide, I'm not going to ask for pretrial detention. And there might be hundreds of people in that community, thousands of people, who are out before trial, right? But they still are almost exclusively poor, disproportionate people of color. They're still going to go to trial. It's still going to be a system that is only for poor people of color. There might be a prosecutor that says, you know what, we're not going to overcharge, right? Or we're going to ask for more reasonable sentences. It's true. People may spend less time in prison, but the people in prison will still be exclusively poor and disproportionately people of color because we're talking about prosecutors that promise to treat poor people of color less cruelly. It's not about changing a system that says the only people worthy of being punished and controlled are poor people of color. If we want to change that attitude, we have to start seeing poor people, people of color, marginalized communities as our brothers and sisters and community members. And that happens by learning who they are, by getting close to them, by learning their stories and seeing not their differences but their similarities. That can only come from the, from, from the people in the system who sit down with members of impacted communities, who learn those stories, who share those stories. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. A, a friend of mine who's from here in Boston, Adam Foss, you probably have heard of Adam. He is a, he, when, when you think of a progressive prosecutor, Adam's the picture of the progressive, progressive prosecutor. Just for purposes of the podcast, Adam was at the Suffolk County DA's office in the juvenile unit, right? That's and, right. And he gave a great TED talk about the role that prosecutors should be playing in changing the system, which I strongly recommend people check out. I absolutely, people rec I absolutely recommend people check out the podcast. Um, when I'm not uh, uh, working at Gideon's Promise, I'm a law school professor myself. I teach at a law school in Atlanta called Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. And I, I, I teach a course in criminal justice lawyering, and I have all my students watch Adam's TED Talk. Um, and I would rather have a system of Adam Foss's than... Uh, most of the prosecutors I've come across in my life. But but what I often tell my class when I show that TED Talk, you know, Adam sort of tells the story of a young man who he meets who is charged with a string of computer thefts. And um, Adam sees something in him. Adam realizes this young man doesn't have a, a history. This young man could really go to college and what a waste it would be to throw this life away. And so Adam works with him and 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 gets him to agree to, to pay back um, the money um, uh, uh, for the stolen computers. And in exchange, he diverts the case from the system. The young man's never charged. And Adam runs into this young man several years later. Um, 
and the young man is doing incredibly well, right? It's really the story of how a prosecutor with a little bit of compassion can make a difference in someone's life. And when I tell my story, as, as fond as I am of Adam Foss, um, I actually think that's a story about public defenders, not about progressive prosecutors, because I think the only way a prosecutor like Adam Foss knows of the hundreds of poor people, people of color brought to him in a month, if you've got to figure out which life is worth saving, you need to know something about that person. And as a prosecutor, you only know that through the public defender. It's the public defender, the committed public defender, who learns the story of the individual, learns that they're more than just a computer thief. They share that information with the prosecutor. They help the prosecutor understand this is a life worth saving. So if we have an army of really committed public defenders, Adam Foss's TED Talk won't be about that one person who saved. And, and to be fair to Adam, I think Adam has done that for, for many more. Um, but he also, because he's forced to work in a system that is punitive, um, has been involved in his fair share of, of sending people to detention facilities. And if we had a system where really public defenders had the resources and the time and the inclination to learn these stories, prosecutors across the country would, would rethink the way they see the people they are locking away. And I think that we'd have a lot more Adam Fosses. Is there, do you think there's ever a time where public defenders' roles as like, activists and advocates and individual advocates for their clients might conflict? Absolutely. A absolutely. So, so there is a motto we use when we teach our public defenders. Um, you know, one of the things that every public defender has experienced is, is burnout. Um, you start to get a little jaded, right? The, the pressures of too many cases and, and judges that simply can't stand your clients um, and, and judges who are angry at you for fighting too hard. That can wear you down. And so we talk about how public defenders can stay motivated. There's a, a wonderful trainer out of Kentucky, a guy named Jeff Shear, who's been training with us since the beginning. And Jeff developed a model that he calls the public defender motivational triad. Um, and Jeff, you know, would, would, would want me to mention that, that, that this, this model sort of grows out of work by people like Charles Ogletree, um, Abby Smith at Georgetown, people who have thought a lot about what motivates public defenders. And, and, and Jeff's triangle, Jeff basically would argue that anyone who is a client-centered public defender, who does this work because of the people we represent, does this work because of one of three primary motivators. He would say that some of us are social workers. We do this work because we want to help the people we work with get back on their feet, right? Some of us are warriors. We do this work because we don't like bullies. We want to stand up for someone when the power of the state is, is, is coming at them. And some of us are movement builders or activists. We, we understand the system is racist, classist, that, these are, that there are incredible civil rights violations happening in the system, and we want to be part of a community committed to changing that. And so Jeff would say all of us um, have each of those motivators in us but we tend to have one as our primary motivator. And that the best way to stay inspired, to sustain yourself, is to learn to tap into all three because there will be times when that one motivator doesn't get you over a particular challenge and you need to tap into another. 
right? So having said that, we had a conversation once. Um, we bring our new lawyers together for three weeks, or I'm sorry, for two weeks every year at this 14-day boot camp. And Susan Burton, who's an amazing community activist who does great work in L.A., she started an organization called um, A New Way of Life. She does this amazing work where she has um, homes um, for women coming out of prison, doing reentry work. So Susan comes to Birmingham, and she's talking to us about this article, and she says, Michelle Alexander says, if we just all go to trial, we can crash the system. Shouldn't we do that? And it raised this really interesting conversation with our public defenders who were sort of, as activists, they love the idea of crashing the system. But they also recognize they might have a client who says, you know, I really love this idea of crashing the system, but you know what I really want to do? I want to be home Friday. Like, if, if a plea will get me home Friday, that's what I want. And so there is that conflict. And at the micro level, when we're representing individual clients, um, making sure we learn what they want out of their case and helping them achieve it is critical. At a micro level, that might seem like it goes against this broader um, sort of activist streak, but ultimately I don't think it does because I think ultimately any activism that we embrace as public defenders ultimately is about giving voice to people who have been silenced. Is it's ultimately about making sure the people who are impacted um, make decisions for themselves, right? We have a system where it is so cruel and unjust because for far too long as a society, we've decided there are some communities that we have to step in and control. And so breaking, breaking people out of that system of control is critical to any activism, and it starts with giving them choice and control over that very case. Do you think that the um, Gideon's Promise model requires a critical mass? So what is the impact of sort of one amazing advocate in a courthouse um, that is, you know, speaking truth to power and telling their, their clients' stories if everyone else in the courthouse is still just sort of processing people? Well, I, I absolutely believe one lawyer who's willing to stand up and speak truth to power and introduce a new way of seeing um, justice has an impact. But I also recognize that one lawyer, um, it, they, you've got to be some kind of superhero to survive in a system where every day everyone is telling you you're wrong, you're crazy, right? They're trying to push you back. If we could get that one lawyer to survive until they're running the office and then they're hiring people that think like they do and they're advocating for policies consistent with their vision... That would be that'd be amazing. So, so if there was that lawyer, that lawyer certainly would matter. The problem is, um, I think it is really unrealistic to think that one lawyer survives for very long um, if they're alone. So, absolutely, our model envisions working with offices. We actually don't work with individual lawyers. We partner with offices that are committed to building a community of like-minded lawyers in the office, so they have that. Support. Now, I'll say this. I mean, I think about, you know, my own personal heroes, people like Steve Bright, who to me is, um, you know, has done as much for indigent defense as anyone in this country and continues to. Um, 
So if we had a class of 100 lawyers and one of them lasted long enough to become the next Steve Bright, that alone would be significant. One lawyer can make a huge difference. But going back to what you said, I think the chances of that lawyer surviving increase incredibly when they're surrounded by like-minded colleagues. So on the topic of emotional support and community, public defenders lose a lot. I think that's just part of the job, depending on your definition of losing. But if you're thinking guilty, not guilty, plea versus not guilty, public defenders lose a lot. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what that experience is like. I mean, you seem like the kind of attorney who really invests in your clients and gets to know them, and, um, and I imagine that's emotionally difficult. So I think it's incredibly emotionally difficult. Um, but I think, so I think a lot of what we're doing with our lawyers is, right, we're, 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 we can't uh, work with lawyers to represent 300 people really well. It's just not possible. Um, what we can do is we can work with our lawyers to represent 50 people really well and understand that in representing 50 people really well, they're going to watch 250 people fall through the cracks because of things beyond their control. But if they understand that if they're not there representing 50 people really well, there might be a lawyer that accepts all 300 falling through the cracks. And so when one lawyer can give 50 people the kind of representation they deserve, and we have 10 lawyers in an office doing that for 500 people, and 1,000 lawyers in a sort of a multi-county area doing that for 50,000 people, that starts to become significant, right? Um, and, so, and so I think what we really are teaching our lawyers is success is not necessarily not guilty verdicts. Success is being able to give people the representation that you and I would want for our loved ones. At the end of the day, if you've, in a system where people are so used to getting no representation, literally giving them the representation they deserve is a huge success. Now, if you do that and someone is found guilty, it hurts, right? You're watching someone you care about um, you know, they're being sent to a cage, and that's a difficult thing to watch. But, but, but if you can forgive yourself for the things beyond your control and feel good about the improvements you're making to the system and the voice you're giving someone who otherwise wouldn't have a voice, um, you're successful. And if you see your accomplishment in the context of a much broader movement, and understand that when hundreds of lawyers are doing just what you're doing, that's leading to systemic reform. Hopefully you feel successful, not because of that one case, but because of the role you're playing in a much larger effort to, 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 to make justice a reality. You know, you talk about the sort of represent 50 clients well, let sadly let 250 slip through the cracks. I imagine there's a world in which there's inequity in which those in the way in which those clients are assigned or chosen. I don't know how it works. Um, but what is the system by which people get to good attorneys versus processing attorneys? Well, there there, there is no one system. So America is a I mean there there are 50 states. States are required 
to make sure that people accused of crimes who are looking at prison or jail time have lawyers. And every state decides that differently. So some states have state systems. Some states uh, delegate that, that, that authority to counties. Some are a mix. Even within county-based systems, you know, some have full-time public defender offices. Some appoint lawyers. Judges appoint lawyers. Um, some have panel systems or contract systems. So it's all really very, very different. I think we tend to work with public defender offices. Uh, and usually they're public defender offices that take virtually every case unless there's a conflict. Um, we do have some exceptions. We, we've got a partnership with Houston where we're, we, we, we are several years into a pilot project to work with court-appointed lawyers. But, but, but generally, we're, we work with public defenders. And, and so clients will come to the public defender's office, and the public defenders decide who's going to represent what clients. Assuming all good public defenders, I think it's a really individual individually you have to decide where you're going to put your resources. If that's the question, how do you decide who the 50 are that get the resources and who the 250 are that fall through the cracks? It's just a, it's a terrible position we put public defenders in. Um, and how you do that I think is really going to vary. But I think of it much like, you know, if you were, if you had a boat and you saw 300 people drowning, and you knew you could get 50 people in that boat and you could save those 50 people, right? If you try to get all 300 in the boat, everyone drowns. Um, sadly, we have too many people in boats who see those 300 people and they just row past them all and let them all go. And so we really are talking about public defenders who are in the terrible position of saying, I've got to choose which 50 to save, but at least I'm going to save 50. And in doing so, I am going to point out how unfair it is that as a system, we're letting the other 250 go without a boat, right? Hopefully, we're waking the system up to the fact that it's not okay any longer to let 250 people fall through the cracks. One, one more thing along that line. I mean, I do think that public defenders have become so beaten down, so burned out because they're so under-resourced that oftentimes they become resigned to the status quo. And when the public defenders are okay with 300 people falling through the cracks, it sends a message to the rest of the system, you don't have to change a thing. Even the advocates are okay with it. So to me, the first step in real reform is making sure we have public defenders who every step of the way are standing up saying, this is not okay. Simply saying this isn't okay, even if you can't give everyone the representation they deserve, is a critical step to, to, to finally getting to where we need to go. So this is an impossible question, and it's um, I'm basically turning <clears throat> the tables, I think, because I got asked this in a couple of interviews this fall. Um, but on the question of, like, let's say you have limited resources and you have to choose who's in that 50, mm -hmm. how would you personally start to make that prioritization? The question that I always got was, would you represent an innocent person with bad facts or a guilty person with good facts? Um, but you could think about it, you know, what would your thought process be going about deciding which 50 people to, to give your, you know, to put your investigators on or to 
spend that extra time writing extra motions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I think, you know, anyone who's been a public defender understands that the way things look on day one are often really different from how they are once you really do the hard work of investigating a case. But if you're in the impossible situation of having to pick 50, you probably have to make an assessment based on the information you have. Where will your resources go furthest, right? What cases look like um, investigation will bear the most fruit? Inevitably, you're gonna make mistakes because you don't have perfect information in the beginning, but you're gonna have to make those calls. Um, I don't know that there's an, a, a right answer. I, I will say I believe that that calculus does not involve an assessment of innocence. Um, to me, innocence has nothing to do with where we invest our resources. Um, Why is that? A, well, A, because I don't think we ever really know. Um, but B, because I believe, I'm not even really sure what innocence is. Like, so, so, so I say to my students all the time, like every semester I'll have some student who will say, they'll use the word criminal. And I'll say, let me stop you there. What does that mean? What do you mean by criminal? Do you mean someone who was arrested because they happened to be in a community that's heavily policed and they were convicted? Do you mean someone who violated one of the rules of society, whether they were ever caught or not? What is a criminal? And assuming it's someone who violated one of the rules of society, that's all of us. And I'll tell them, you know what I believe the highest crime area in Atlanta is? The campus of Georgia Tech. <laughs> it's filled with kids who are drinking before they're 21 and they're smoking marijuana and who knows what else they're doing. But, but. But so I don't see the, 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 the world of, of, of people accused of crimes as innocent and not innocent. I see it as a world of people who made mistakes, like all of us, sometimes along a spectrum of the kinds of mistakes. And I don't believe we can have a justice system where we ration services based on who made the more minor mistake. So to me, that has nothing to do with it. I don't even think about guilt and innocence. I think about... I think about sort of more glaring mistakes versus more minor mistakes. So the criminal justice, um, there, there's been sort of a moment in criminal justice reform awareness, I think, over the last couple of years. And I wonder if you are sensing that that moment is going to continue or if the change in administration has created sort of a shifting tide and what you think is on the on the horizon for the for the movement and, and what you want to do with Gideon's Promise, let's say, over the next five, ten years? So I don't think we can take for granted that it's going to continue, that this sort of focus on criminal justice reform is going to continue. But I do think we have momentum and we have to figure out how to um, sort of bottle that momentum and keep it going. Uh, what, I, what I worry about is I think we're in a moment right now where, as a nation, we've been awakened by a lot of these police shootings. I think we're a little bit horrified by what's happening, and so we're ready to listen, but that's going to die off. I also think as a nation, we're going through a period where, um, where folks are thinking about budget issues, and when things get better financially, that may start to die off.
So uh, I, I think that while there, there, there are these pressures that are forcing us to think about criminal justice reform, um, I think that they are um, potentially short-lived if we don't figure out how to get people to, 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 to rethink their values. I think at the end of the day, to have a sustained movement for real justice, we have to get not just lawyers, but the public to really start to rethink what justice means. So, so for example, um, you know, we sort of are products of, I mean, anyone who's born in, been born in the last 30 years, I guess, are products of the law and order sort of generation in the TV show Law and Order, which is the longest running crime drama series in history. Right? Even the beginning of it, it says the people in, in the United States, in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who arrest defenders and the prosecutors who lock them up. These are their stories. Dun, dun, dun. And, and I think that, that that mindset that literally public defenders aren't part of the criminal justice narrative because we don't care about the people they represent that has to change, and I think that a lot of that change starts in institutions like this, like Harvard, colleges, and law schools. We need to think about how are we teaching people to think about justice. What does justice mean? You can go through law school, graduate law school, and literally never have had to think about the question, what is justice? Right? That's a flaw in the way we teach lawyers. And it's, I think, a flaw in the way we teach human beings through college and through high school. So, so it's such a broad question, but I do think that it's going to be fleeting if we don't find a way to change the way we educate people to make them more concerned about justice. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I want to also thank the people at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for supporting this work and thank the folks at Poddington Bear who composed our theme music. Stay tuned. We're going to have a regular schedule resuming uh, now that the spring semester is kicking into full gear. And uh, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It helps people find the podcast and we'd like as many people to care about the criminal justice system as possible. Thanks. Thanks.